Community Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues a series called Faith Foundations, a Blueprint for the Church. So in today's talk, we focus on the Bible, and it's about the signature. Stay with us to the end to find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. in the house of the Lord today. It was so good to see our young ones down here serving and singing. Wasn't that just a blessing to you? It sure was to me. Uh, every part and every age in the kingdom of God and God's family is important. It doesn't matter if you're retired, uh, if you're one of those who are one of the more uh, senior among us, God cares about you. If you're middle-aged family struggling to make bills, and if you're one of our Little bitty ones, these are the ones that Jesus says, allow them to come unto me. Each one of you is important to God. And we're glad that you're here and a part of our church family. And I pray that you've been encouraged. I pray that our church family likewise has extended their love and their gratitude just for your being here today. Even if it's one Sunday, I pray that you walk away encouraged. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter two. We're gonna talk this morning. Uh, As you know, we're in the middle of a series on the Bible its authority, its infallibility, its inspiration. How do we know that this book that we teach from every Sunday is truly the Word of God? Well, this morning we're gonna study what we're calling the signature of God. Every one of us has a unique signature. If we were to write, if you were to write your name out a uh, hundred times, it'd be very, very similar. I remember as a kid practicing my signature. I remember a teacher telling me, you've gotta have a signature. Didn't realize how many times I'd be signing it. So I remember as a kid thinking, okay, what kind of flourish am I gonna put on this? Uh, What kind of special flair am I gonna do? Now it just looks like a doctor signed it. (laughs) You know, we're just in a hurry. Because we sign our signature all the time, don't we? It used to be that uh, with credit cards, you had to sign every time you bought something. And (laughs) there it goes. When we uh, had a child together, three of them actually, I had to sign off that I am their father. When we bought a house, I signed my signature so many times, I felt like a movie star. Like maybe I'm I'm selling my autograph here. And so I'm signing off. Why do we have a signature? What does that signature mean when I put it on a piece of paper? It is my authentication of that document. I stand behind this. And if you see my signature on a document, you know that me personally, I have approved this. I identify this. I validate this document. Well, this morning, as we look at the Bible, as Christians, we hold that the Bible and no other religious document in the world bears the signature of God. Now, that would be a very arrogant statement were it not true. Can we back that up? 2 Peter 1, verse 19 says, and we have the prophetic word, that's the Bible, more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Fully firm, uh, confirmed means it's fully fixed. It's something that's stable. If you're ever going to sit on a chair that's a little iffy, you know, some of these uh, outdoor chairs, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're, 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 you're testing it. You walk out in a bridge that looks a little iffy, you know, you test it, you kind of bounce on it a little bit, and you realize, okay, I've confirmed it, it's stable, I don't believe it's going to break under my weight. And so the Bible is described as a book that you may be a little iffy about it at first, how do we know this is really from God? The Bible is saying that you can put some weight on it, and you can test it out. It's a fully confirmed book. How do we know that this book is a fully confirmed book? I like what a fellow named Lewis Sperry Chafer once said. He was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And I use this quote all the time. And quite often when I'm sharing with people about how do we know this Bible is from God. And he says these words. The Bible is not such a book that man would write if he could, nor could write if he would. And I think this is such a significant and profound statement that I'm going to use these two phrases as the outline for our message today. So first, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And remember, 1 Corinthians, I believe, along with many commentators, that it is what 2 Corinthians calls the sorrowful letter. It's the letter that even Paul felt bad having to write because he was rebuking them over and over and over. Every chapter is a chapter of rebuke. They're doing something wrong, and then he shows them a better way. Well, one of the things that the Corinthians criticized Paul for was Paul wasn't like all the other speakers. 
He was, he was just preaching from this Bible. They wanted to hear more earthly philosophy. They wanted him to use flowery language like their orators would. And so he was often criticized for the simplicity of his message and how it's so different from what everybody else out there is teaching. And Paul's going to show them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Bible is not a book that man would write if he could. He begins in verse 4 here. He, say, he talks about his speech. What is it that he shared with the Corinthians? He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul is saying that the message that he brings them from the Bible, it's not just made of a bunch of clever arguments. It's not what the people are talking about at the water cooler. It's not what the psychologists, it's not what the philosophers are saying. It's not the pop culture of the day. Paul had a very unique message because it's not the wisdom of this age. He says, it's not the wisdom of man. Paul's not just gonna try to reason with them. He's not just going to use the wisdom of the world. He's not going to try to intellectually convince them. He's just simply going to preach the word of God unfiltered. It's not a wisdom of this age, nor rulers of this age. What does that phrase mean? It means the Bible is not a book that man would write if he could. You're not going to find other people speaking the message of the Bible. You're not going to find other religions saying the message of the Bible. You know, people will often say, why, why do you trust this book? Isn't this book just a book written by a whole bunch of men and men are fallible like you and me? We can't really trust this document. Well, we'll be answering that question a little bit uh, better in a couple of weeks on inspiration. But I would say this, the Bible is not written by a bunch of men and one of the reasons we know that is because it's not a book that man would write. Why not? Because when man creates a religion, it bears the signature of man. The signature of man is this. When we create a religion, what are we going, who are we going to glorify? We're going to glorify ourselves, aren't we? That's, a, that's the signature of a man-made religion. And by the way, any religion that vaunts itself against the true religion of God is a false religion, and it's inspired by Satan. That sounds like a really harsh thing to say in today's culture, I realize. But friends, there's only one truth. There's only one truth, or it's not truth. If we say there's more than one truth, there is no truth. Truth implies, not just implies, but it demands that there only be a singular truth. Now, humans on earth have the, the dubious task of trying to figure out which one of these truths, you know, which one of these religious documents comes from God. Well, let's look at the, what man has written. When man writes a religion, if man creates something, he glorifies himself because Satan is ultimately the one creating the false religion. What was Satan's uh, primary, what was his fall? What was his sin? It was pride. You read Isaiah 14, you read Ezekiel 28, God is speaking specifically to the king of Tyre, who is an evil king, but God speaks through the king of Tyre and eventually goes behind the scenes. He's like, step aside, king of Tyre. Let me talk to the puppeteer behind you, the one who's pulling your strings. And then you can tell very clearly, he's no longer talking to the king of Tyre. He looks behind him and says, how you are fallen, Lucifer, son of the morning. I made you the highest angel in all of glory, and that wasn't good enough. You began to want to be just like me. You want to be God. And so it begins what we call the I wills of Satan. I will be like the most high. I will set my throne and up there with God. Satan's sin was pride. So any religion that Satan creates through man is going to exalt man. He's going to make them. Jesus says that those who follow Satan, he says, you are your sons of your father, the devil. You, because you do the works that he do. If Satan creates a religion, it's going to glorify the man, just like Satan glorified himself. Which religions glorify man? Every single religion on earth glorifies man. Why? Because your salvation is based on you. It's your works. It's what you do. God has you to thank. And in the end, let's all give yourself a hand because, because the reason God's purposes were accomplished is because of the greatness of you. The reason you're a Christian, the reason you're a, a successful person, the reason you're going to heaven is because you're just a little more holy, you're a little bit more obedient, you're just a little bit better than the guy next to you, and he's going to go to hell. That's what all religions in the world ultimately teach because they're a works-based religion. 
You are where you are because of you. In that case, man is both the sinner but, and he's also the savior. In man-made religions, man is both sinner and savior. He'll acknowledge sin, but he won't strip himself of his pride. That's how you can tell a false man-made religion. It's the, the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Man-made religion likes to compare himself to others. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. Man-made religion also likes to make much of what I've done. I want to be seen. I want to be recognized. Look at me. Because in man-made religion, you're the hero of the story. When you have a man-made religion, you are the hero. The hymn of the man-made religion is, I did it my way. If you've ever done a study, a comparative study on world religions, non-Christian religions and things, and I have, uh, you're going to find that, that that common denominator. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I'm going to give you a very fast overview of world religion. Okay? And I just want you to see this for yourself. So in the, among the world religions, probably the smallest one practiced today is Zoroastrianism. Yeah. You heard of that one? Uh, it started uh, with a fellow named Zoroaster. He was a sixth century Iranian philosopher, okay? Part of the Persian Empire. This was their religion. And essentially what they're teaching is this. Through good thoughts and through good words and through good deeds, you as an individual can ensure happiness and you as an individual save the world from chaos. Let me ask you, who's the hero of Zoroastrianism? It's you. You're the hero. And so man has no problem signing off on Zoroastrianism. It's great. It's, it's, it's a good religion. Judaism. True Judaism, by the way, is where, is where we're at right now. We're, it's Christianity because Jesus did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. But what about Judaism as we see it practiced today? It's still where it was when they left it and they, and they murdered their Messiah. It's Pharisaic Judaism. It's, not Ju it's Judaism that's not based on the Torah, the Old Testament law, as much as it is their Mishnah, which is their interpretation of the law. And so they teach the oral traditions of man. They teach the commentary of man. And so in true Judaism, who's the hero of Judaism? It's you. Why? Because you are saved by your adherence to the law. And now God applauds you as you enter the gates of heaven. Again, man is both sinner and savior of himself. And so man has no problem signing off on Judaism as it stands today. What about Islam? It was created by a single man, Muhammad, who was highly, by the way, influenced by the Bible. He was a sixth century merchant and uh, borrowing from his knowledge of the Bible, he says that he was visited by one of the angels mentioned in the Bible, Gabriel. And God gave him the, the Quran. Well, the Quran's verses, many of its concepts, its stories, and some whole verses are plagiarized from God's word and within the, within the Quran itself. It's just, it's a, it's a reaction against Christianity. If you, in fact, if you go to Jerusalem and you visit the Dome of the Rock, what will you see inscribed on one of its walls? It says, there is no father and he has no son. It's just, it's purely a reaction against Christianity. I like some of the tenets, some of the principles, some of the morals of Christianity, but I will not follow. So instead of following the seed of Isaac through Jesus, what are we gonna do? We're gonna follow the seed of Ishmael, the child of the flesh. And so that's Islam. How are you saved in Islam? You are saved by following the five pillars of Islam, profession of faith in Allah, which, by the way, Allah is not the same as our God. Don't be one of those Christians who foolishly say that we all believe in the same God. Look how they describe Allah, and look how the Bible, God describes himself. It's not the same God, okay? So you have to have a profession of faith in Allah, but then beyond that, it's all up to you. The five pillars of Islam. You have uh, profession, prayer, alms, fasting, and pilgrimage. And so again, God has you to think that you're just more holy and more submissive to God than someone else. By the way, that's what Islam means. It means submission. You're just a little more submissive than the next guy. And so the reason you get all those virgins in eternity, it's because you're so good. Hinduism, a lot of times people will say, why do you believe in Christianity? Because Hinduism is the oldest world religion. First of all, that's not entirely true. It started around the 14, 1500s BC, but that was the same time that Moses was writing the books of Job and the books of Moses. And besides that, remember, many of the early religions were oral religions. They passed it on orally. It existed before we had any writings from that religion. 
Remember that writing did not become really popular and really big until Egypt developed the concept of paper. And so as Moses leads his people out of the land of Egypt and through the desert wilderness wanderings, they take that technology with him and what are they doing? Moses is writing. And so we have the books of Moses. So no, Hinduism, it's, it's not predating Christianity. The, the religion of following the one true God has existed since the beginning of time, since God gave the first gospel in Genesis 3.15 saying, and he will, you will crush his head and he will bruise your heel. That gospel has existed since creation. But in Hinduism, um, you're saved by eliminating evil in your life until you merge with their God concept, Brahma their highest of, last count, I think it was 330 million deities. I mean, how do you even keep record of that? You can't even have books in your shelf that name all the deities, but that's what it says. And so you are, you are the one that eliminates evil in your life. So you get to heaven, there'll be a standing ovation for you because you are the hero of Hinduism. You have eliminated evil in your life and you're reabsorbed into Brahma, whatever that looks like. You have Sikhism, also developed in India and Pakistan, okay? So you have Sikhism. It's also a reactionary religion. In India and Pakistan, what were the two major religions? Islam, Hinduism. Do you know what the passphrase is in Sikhism? It's this, there is no Islam and there is no Hinduism, okay? So they're just, what religion are you? I'm not this and I'm not that. We're gonna do our own thing. We're gonna create our own deal here. And so it, with the Sikhs, your hope is that through your good deeds, Okay? Through successive reincarnation, reincarnations and through karma, this idea that you do good, you immediately receive good here on earth, and then eventually you'll be absorbed into their God concept, Wahagaru, which is totally not like Brahma because there is no Hinduism, right? And so that's Sikhism. Man is the karmic hero of Sikhism. And so man signs the document, we believe in this. You have Shintoism, if you go to Japan, Shintoism is ancestor worship. It's the literal worship of people. If you're gonna create a religion, wouldn't you love it when people worshiped you? If you had something that where you could teach your kids to worship you through all time and eternity? And where, who, who is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom of Shintoism? It's the actual, literal, earthly kingdom of Japan. That's heaven. Rice noodles and anime. That is heaven to the, in Shintoism. Okay, it, it literally is, their kingdom is of this world and their goal is to live on through their ancestors. That's your idea of heaven. It's in, you know, inhabiting the body of your seventh grade nephew. Okay, so this is a religion made by man. It's a literal earthly kingdom where you set yourself up to be worshiped by your family for time and eternity. And so man signs the document. Taoism, it's a philosophy of life on earth. If you've heard of uh, yin and yang, you know, that circle with the two dots, that there's good and evil and they're in these kind of a balance. Taoism is Star Wars. It is. You got Darth and Luke, you got the Sith, you got the Jedi, you have, you know, there's an unbalance in the force. There's a great evil, Darth Vader. What are we gonna do? We need Luke Skywalker to balance out Darth. And so that's Taoism. So there's, it recognizes there's great evil in your life, but who's gonna balance out that great evil? It's you. You are the hero of Taoism. You're gonna balance out evil and good in the universe and somehow bring us to some heavenly place, okay? Buddhism originally came from India, okay? You got this fellow Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, and he retreats from society. He's pretty depressed. And so he escapes from society. He goes out into the woods and he preaches, I think, to like nine deer or something like that. And he's preaching to these deer, which is why if you go to a Buddhist monastery or temple, you'll see deer figure prominently around Buddhist monasteries and temples. It's an allusion to this time where he was enlightened in the wilderness and he figured all these things out. And so what he identified is, he just looked around the world and he made observations. There's a lot of suffering out there in the world. Well, where does that suffering come from? Well, it comes from your desires. Now, he's not too far off here. Remember, James says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence? Evidently, I learned this in the King James. <laughs> even of the lust that war in your members. Okay, so God even says, yes, there's sin, there's suffering in the world, and it comes from your lust and your passions. Now, where the Buddha went wrong is, instead of turning to God to save him, where did he turn? He turned inward, he turned to himself. Now it's up to you, okay? You're gonna do good, you're gonna do karma, you're gonna do reincarnations, where through your own good deeds, eventually through successive reincarnations in various stages of, of life and animal and human, eventually you escape the wheel of creation and you're absorbed into nirvana, not the 1990s grunge band from Seattle. 
Nirvana, do you know what nirvana means? It means to extinguish. That's what nirvana means. It means your life stinks so bad. Don't you hate your life? Don't you hate your life? That's the message of Buddhism. Life really stinks, doesn't it? Try to be as good as you can until eventually someday you'll simply, you'll cease to exist. That's depressing. Friends, these are man-made religions. You're the hero of your story. You're the hero of your book. You're, yes, you're a sinner, but you're also the savior. And in the end, man receives the glory. Is Christianity really that much different than all these major world religions? I don't know, friend. Look at the document. The document of Christianity is the only one that's different from the rest of these messages. Look, for instance, at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. The Bible describes you and I this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Have turned aside. Together they have become, what does it say? Worthless. Would man write that about himself? He didn't in any other religion. We would not knowingly, we may acknowledge our weakness, we may acknowledge our sin, we may acknowledge suffering out there, but we will not rob ourselves of the opportunity for glory that I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, whatever that means, and that I can save myself and I, in the end, receive all the glory. That's, that's, that's the message of other religions. Christianity says that our good deeds, they're, they're worthless. The Bible says we have to come to God by grace. What's grace? It's something God does. It's something God gets glory for. It's his unmerited favor that he pours out on us. Not by works. Titus 3.5 says, he, God, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God not giving us the punishment that we rightfully deserve for the wrong that we've done. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace that you've been saved through faith. And get this, that faith, what does it he say? It's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. In Christianity, we can't even just say that I came to Jesus because I'm just a little more holy, a little more submissive, a little better than other people. It's all by grace. Romans 3, 25 to 27 speaks of Christ's death on the cross. It says it was to show whose righteousness? God's righteousness, not ours. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, God was willing to endure our sin for a time. He passed over our former sins, but it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, not us, he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul asked the question we're all asking, well, what about our boasting? What about all the good things we've done? What's he say? It's excluded. No other religion is going to exclude your glory. No other religion in the world excludes your ability to save yourself. In fact, it's all on you. It's upon your ability to be submissive, your ability to obey, your ability to conform, your ability to submit to whatever concept they have. It's all because of you. But God's religion, it showcases his own righteousness. Well, what does the Bible say about the righteousness of man then? Isaiah 64, 6. This is a famous passage here. We have all become like one who is unclean. Unclean is something that is unacceptable to God. He says, we have all become unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A garment is something that you wear. Other translations translate this a little bit more specifically. It'll say that all of our deeds are as filthy rags, right? And so whatever he's talking about here, it's a garment, a rag that you wear with the intention of being polluted. And without being too crass, friends, I just want you to tell you exactly what the Hebrew says. Polluted is a Hebrew word that specifically refers to someone's monthly cycle. That is a filthy rag. It's a rag that is meant to be worn. It's meant to be polluted. That is exactly what God describes all of our good deeds, the very best that we can do, if we heap them up to try to impress God, friend, that's not gonna impress God. Would man write that of his own deeds? Would man write this religion that robs him of all potential for glory and gives all glory to God? No, but God would. God said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, not you. I am the Lord, that is my name in my glory I give to no one else. Did God write the Bible? Follow the glory. Who's receiving the glory in the religion? 
That's a very good indicator whether it came from man and man receives the glory or God and God receives the glory. He says in verse six of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter two, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age. You're not gonna hear it out there in the news channels. You're not gonna read it in the newspaper. You're not gonna open up a magazine and discover our wisdom. You're not gonna find it in an earthly religion. He says, it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We do, however, he says, give wisdom to the mature. Mature here is describing somebody who believes in God and acts on it. They're mature. They're a true believer. James says, faith without works is dead. You call yourself a believer, but you don't look like it. So your faith, James says, is dead. True faith will always act out on that faith. You're not saved because of your works, but good works give evidence that you had true and saving faith. But he says the Bible's not of the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. The Bible's not teaching pop psychology. It's not teaching philosophy. It's not trying to combine its ideas with science so as to uh, try to play nice with human scientific reasoning. The Bible simply declares what is true. Why? Because it's not written by men. It's not written by men, he says, who pass away. If you want, you can go to the Green Dome in uh, Medina, Saudi Arabia, and you can see the body of Muhammad. You can go to Jining, China, and you can see the tomb of Confucius. You can go see the cremated remains of the original Buddha in Jingchuan, China. You can see all of these people who have created these religions and they've passed away and they're gone. Our Bible is written by a God through Jesus, if you will, whoever lives to make intercession for us. The tomb is empty. Where do, we don't take our words from just regular everyday people like you and I who die and experience corruption. This is not a human religion. So the Bible is not a book that man would write if he could. The message glorifies God, it strips man of his glory. But what if man wanted to? Let's just say man wanted to be crazy. And he's like, I just wanna be different from every other religion. I wanna create a religion that condemns myself and that robs me of all glory and calls my good deeds filthy rags. Could he do it if he wanted to? We're gonna see number two, no, he could not. The Bible is not a book that man could write if he would. In verses seven through nine, he says this. The message that we preach, he says, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Paul describes God's wisdom as something that is secret and it's hidden. It's not some, he's saying that the, the message of the Bible is not a message man could possibly know even if he wanted to write it himself. He could not. It's a secret message. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. God reveals certain things to us. He says in that same passage, those are the things that we pass on to our children. But don't think for a minute that this is a compendium of all of God's wisdom. This is just a tiny sliver of what God says you and I can handle. It's not a message of this age. It's not something that man could write because these are, it's secret, it's hidden. Sometimes the Bible uses the term a mystery. It's something that would remain a mystery to man if God hadn't revealed to us what truth was. Colossians 1, 25 to 26 says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. So God had a certain message that was hidden from history and little by little, God has given us more and more. Jesus even said this in John 16. There's more that I want to reveal to you, but you're not able to receive it now, but I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to guide you in all truth. What's he saying? That you apostles are gonna receive the Holy Spirit and he's gonna guide you in the rest of the scriptures. But you can't handle it all now. It's a mystery. This is a message that was hidden in the mind of God. It's not something that man could arrive to through successive years of study and PhDs. Verse nine, <clears throat> look at that. It's probably the most misinterpreted Bible verse in all the Bible. When we read verse nine, I'm gonna read it for you. Tell me what we usually say it means. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What do we usually say that means? What are we talking about? Heaven, right? Let's put some weight on that, okay? What's, to discover God's intended meaning for a passage, we can't just do a flippant reading of a single verse and say, that sounds good for me. 
In that case, we're reading our intended desire into the Bible. Context controls the meaning. What's the context of this passage? What are the verses before and immediately after this verse talking about? It's talking about the Bible. It's talking about the wisdom of God, the message that we preach. And so he says, that message is not something that eye has ever seen. That message is not something that ears have ever heard. That message that God gives to us has never even entered the heart of, of man. He never could have imagined it. The things that God has prepared for his children. And then he says, to clarify it even further, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit, that the word of God comes through the spirit of God through inspiration. More on that in a future message. But this is not talking about heaven. Is heaven great? Yes. Is it something that you could never possibly imagine with your eyes, ears, or even dream of in your heart? Yes, it's true. But it's not true from this verse. Go to end of Revelation. You can hear more about it. This is talking about the message of verse 9 is saying this, the Bible is not a book that man could write if he would. It's never even entered into the wildest imaginations of man to write a book like this. The things that God has prepared for us, these things that he has revealed through his spirit. Again, this is a claim to inspiration. Man didn't come up with this. God spoke through human authors using God's divine wisdom that man never could have come to on his own. The Bible contains secrets. It contains things the, the 1 Corinthians 2 says were hidden. They're mysteries. What kind of things does the Bible reveal that man could not possibly come up with on his own? What is it that is the signature of God? I'll give you just a few examples today, and I'm not even going to bring up history and archaeology. By the way, always backs up the Bible. Archaeology is the Bible's best friend. People didn't used to believe in the Hittites. They didn't used to believe in Pontius Pilate, and they would scorn the Bible for such historical inaccuracies. What has archaeology since revealed? Huh, we found something about the Hittites. We found things about Pontius Pilate. We're going to backpedal on that a little bit. No, archaeology is the Bible's best friend, but we're not even going to go there today. We're going to look at three things here. The first is the science of the Bible. The Bible begins by revealing the origins of man, and it doesn't ask us to make a leap of faith to believe that the earth was created by cosmic accident, time, and chance, and that things disobeyed several scientific laws to create create the uh, origins of the universe. No, the Bible simply declares that in the beginning, God, and God created the heavens and the earth, and God created scientific law. But the Bible also teaches a number of other scientific things. Is this a science textbook? No. The intention of this book was not to teach you how to be a scientist. But since God wrote scientific law, God can speak authoritatively on those scientific matters. Are there things in the Bible scientifically that the Bible knew long before man? I can give you a few examples. You guys remember in school, you studied the hydrologic water cycle? Got a picture up here for you in case you forgot what that looked like. You feel like you're back in school now. The hydrologic water cycle is simply this. It's that water exists down here, but over time it evaporates right? And then it condensates up in these clouds up above, and then it precipitates. It comes down in the form of snow or rain, the hydrologic water cycle. Man first discovered this cycle with the Roman engineer Vitruvius in 30 BC. That's a long time ago. Guess what the Bible wrote in 1400-some BC? Some 1400 years before this. Job chapter 26, verse 10, it says, he, God, has I don't know, back it up. Job 36, 27 to 29. For he, God, draws up the drops of water. What does that sound like? Evaporation. And he distills it in his mist and the rain. That's precipitation. The skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. And then he talks about the condensation. He talks about the clouds above the earth. And so 1,400 years before man ever discovered the hydrologic water cycle, God just flippantly talks about it like we're, like we're just talking about today's news. It wasn't until about 500 BC before the ancient Greeks began to believe that the earth was round. And even then, it was just a postulation. It was not universal knowledge in 500 BC, but that's as far back as we can go to be generous. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, in uh, 1400 BC, some thousand years before even one civilization postulated this to be true, the Bible just boldly proclaims in the book of Job the roundness of the earth. He says in Job 26.10, he, God, inscribed a circle on the face of the waters. What's he talking about? 
Sometimes if you're in a rocky, jagged, hilly land like Israel, you don't get to see the horizon. You don't get to see the curvature of the earth. Uh, you can't, uh, but if you're on the ocean body and you see a ship approaching for a while, you see just a little bit of it and then more and more and more and more. That's not indicative of flat earth. It's, it, he's showing here that God created the circle on the face of the deep. It says the same thing in Proverbs 8, 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew, uh, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Isaiah 42 spoke to man saying, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The Bible just flippantly talks about these things. He's not trying to take you to school. He's just declaring what's true. What about ocean currents? We talked a little bit about that last week. You remember ocean currents? Uh, there was a fellow named, the father of modern oceanography, a fellow named Matthew Maury uh, in the 1800s. He got sick and he had his daughter was reading him the Bible, which is what you do when you're sick. He didn't have YouTube back then. And so uh, when he's sick, he's, re he's reading him the Bible. He comes to Psalm chapter eight, verse eight, and it says, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And he's like, hang on, paths of the sea? Could it possibly be true that the water has a path, a current, a circuit that it follows, these little paths in the ocean? And it sent Mr. Matthew Murray on this journey to try to discover whether or not the, the ocean actually had currents. And you know what he found? It did. We discovered ocean currents because of the Bible. And again, that was, the Bible spoke about it confidently nearly 3,000 years prior. Ancient mythology believed that Atlas held up the earth, right? You remember those pictures, this, this, this big buff guy? And I don't know, here's the funny thing. So the earth is standing on Atlas's shoulders or in Hindu or Tibetan theologies, it's on a, it's on a turtle. And somehow that makes it completely logical, but nobody asked what the turtle is standing on. But to man, to ancient man, this seems very clear that the earth was on a, a dude's shoulders or a giant turtle. It wasn't until Pythagoras, you remember his theorem? He postulated that the earth in 500 BC hung on nothing but space. But even then, nobody was ready to receive it until a couple hundred years later when Aristotle confirmed that to be true. Until then, men believed that we were on the back of some giant tortoise in space. But what did the Bible say in the 1400s BC, Job 26.7? He stretches out the north over the void, over the space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. The Bible just flippantly talks about that kind of stuff. And I could go on and on and on here, friends. I could talk about how the Bible talks about atoms, how we're made up of microscopic particles. We'd talk about ocean springs, something that man couldn't have discovered until we built submarines. I could talk about the rotation of the earth on its axis. I could talk about mutual electrostatic repulsion, but you don't even like that word because it sounds a lot like work. Okay, so we could talk about all these different scientific things that the Bible talks about and declared to be true years, centuries, sometimes millennia before man ever discovered it. Could man have written this? Absolutely not. It's obvious. We didn't even discover these things until later. But we're gonna look B at the unity of the Bible. You see, the Bible teaches us how to live today. It teaches us how to live with purpose. It teaches us how to uh, live morally and correctly and rightly in this present age, which is pretty impressive because whenever we start talking about ethics and morals, do you guys always agree? Go out there, I, I, I give you this challenge. You go out on Facebook and make a really broad, moral declaration on something uh, controversial today and see if you don't have a hundred of your Facebook friends go, how dare you say that, okay? That's because you can't get two people to agree on ethics and morals and life's purpose and why we exist. Even those who have been trained, those who are psychologists, those who are philosophers, if you look at a, uh, a psychologist wall of all these psychological manuals, you'll have one generation believing one thing. The next generation, what does it do? It says, oh, that first generation, they had no clue. We have the truth. And then the next generation rises up and says, oh, these guys were really off. Let me tell you what really is truth. And the next generation, and the next generation, man can't ever agree on what's true. But the Bible does. You know the Bible was written over a period of 2,000 years using 40 different authors on, in multiple different cultures and everything that it reports in ethics and morality and the purpose of life and theology and doctrine completely 100% agrees that there is no contradiction. Now, it doesn't mean people aren't going to make an accusation that there's contradiction in the Bible. When somebody says, oh, I can't believe in the Bible, there's so many contradictions, just say, hey, you know what, that's a really interesting conversation. Would you show me what you're talking about? 
Nine times out of 10, they have no clue. They're simply making an ignorant statement of something they hope to be true. I hope the Bible's full of contradictions that fits my desired theology because then I'm not accountable to the Bible and I can live any way I want. You'll have a couple people who, you know, they watched some guy on YouTube and uh, he'll, he'll bring up something that looks like a contradiction. Can I tell you, friends, I've studied these so-called contradictions. They all pan out, friends. You just simply haven't studied it well enough. You don't understand the context or you don't understand that that event happened two times. You know, it's, the Bible is a unified book. It's almost as if, despite using 40 authors millennia apart in different cultures, that they were simply different tools of the same author. That's what it reveals. And the last thing I'm gonna show you briefly this morning, again, briefly is always a lie. When a pastor says briefly, okay. It's not gonna be that long. Uh, okay, less than a page here. The prophecies of the Bible. Did you realize that the Bible predicted the rise and fall of major world empires? If you read the book of Daniel, in particular Daniel chapter seven, it is so, it's so evidently the signature of God that the world does their very best to try to late date the book of Daniel. In other words, they say Daniel's act, prophecies are so accurate, surely he wrote them as a retrospective. But he didn't. We have scientific authority that, sh that revealed to us Daniel wrote his books during the Babylonian captivity, which began in 607 BC. Daniel wrote his books during that time. We can, we can pinpoint and ac accurately pinpoint Daniel to be writing during those periods of time, but scientists can't accept it because it's too accurate. You see, in the book, uh, chapter seven, if you've studied the book of Daniel, which the first half of the book is great, it's all full of children's stories. You read them to your kids before they go to bed. The last half of Daniel, you scan through because you're really confused, okay? It's some tough prophecies. But in the, Daniel chapter seven, he talks about these four beasts which arise out of the ocean, right? And these four beasts are described a very unique and particular way. It's describing major world empires. When the Bible talks about government, he either calls you a good government, a tree, that which provides shade and fruit, you protect your people and you feed your people, or you're described biblically as a beast, something that only follows instinct, it, it, it only does what it desires, and it consumes its own people for the glory of its own government. It's a beast. Well, these four beastly governments are prophesied in Daniel chapter seven. The first one, he says, is like a lion. Daniel 7, 4 says, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Pause. If you've ever studied world history, you've studied these different empires, which, which creature is it, or which nation does that represent? A lion with wings. Have you seen that picture before? You have. If I showed you a picture of it, I can't remember if we have it in our PowerPoint or not. Uh, we were at the London Museum and we saw, we were going through, and we were looking at the Babylonian Empire and all that kind of stuff and they have these, these stone carvings and you know what it is? It's a lion that has wings. They represent themselves that way even. And in, some, in many cases, you'll see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself was so proud he puts his own face on there. Okay, so we're talking about Babylon here. Well, does this really describe Babylon? Well, I don't know. He's a lion, eagle's wings. He's, he, he's mighty, uh, sweeps across the nation. He says, but it came to a place where his wings were plucked off. That the, the, the main leader he's speaking to is Nebuchadnezzar, who, did Nebuchadnezzar have his wings clipped? He sure did. He thought he was so great. He says, everybody's gonna worship me and my golden statue. What did God do? You're gonna eat grass like a cow. And history will document this. He ate grass like a cow. Eventually, God gives his mind back to him as he repents to the Lord of heaven. And, and it says, just as it says in Daniel, and the mind of man was given to it. Well, if you, if you remember studying history, who conquered the Babylonians? It was the Medo-Persians, weren't they? The Medo, we say Medo-Persians because it was kind of two great nations that were kind of one, but one was much stronger than the other nation, wasn't it? Eventually the Persians gained power over the Medes. Why is that important to know? Because in the book of Daniel, they're described as a bear who's hunched up on one side. One side is obviously much stronger than the other, the Persians and the Medes. But it also describes them as having three ribs in their mouth, that this particular beast devoured three other beasts and he has three of their ribs in its mouth. Did the Medo-Persians conquer or devour three other nations? It sure did. Babylonians, the Lydians, right? You remember all this? And the third one was uh, Egypt. Then Daniel predicts the rise of a different empire. Who took over after the Medo-Persians? It was the Greeks. 
And they took over the world with such swiftness, Alexander the, Con the Great conquered the known world in less than 10 years. That's pretty impressive, that's very swift. In fact, he was so depressed when he conquered the world, historians say that he, he wept that there was nothing else to conquer. How did Daniel pre, uh, represent this particular empire? He, pre, he called it a leopard that had these wings, indicating the swiftness, four wings, these very swift flying creature just swept through the whole earth and took it over. But when Alexander the Great died at age 32, what'd he do? He divided his kingdom amongst four heads his four generals. How is he pictured here in the book of Daniel? A four-headed leopard. And then he, then he goes on to predict who, after the Greeks, who took over? The Romans. The Romans took over after the Greeks. And so he predicted the rise of the Roman Empire. And this is really interesting. Look at this, verse seven to eight of Daniel seven. He says, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it, that beast, had great iron teeth, and it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different than all the beasts that were before it and had 10 horns. Now, interestingly enough, the Roman Empire did. It was just this steamroller that just crushed nations underneath the might of its military. And interestingly enough, what were their weapons made out of? Iron, that's what Daniel's saying. The teeth of this creature, its weapons were iron. The Romans ushered in the Iron Age. The Bible predicted all this. And it's so accurate, secular historians are like, no, surely Daniel's just doing a retrospective, but it's, it's historically documented. But you know what's interesting? There's another beast that rises out of the sea that Daniel talks about. He talks about a revived Roman Empire. And the world used to scorn and mock the Bible. There's no way Europe will ever come together. This warring band of Germanic tribes and such, there's no way Europe will ever come together and form a union. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Remember the European Common Market, the Economic Union, the EU we have today? This, we, we just see history and prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. The very stage of the world is set all according to something that Daniel wrote back in the 600s BC. Friends, this is not a book that man could write. If he ever had the wildest imagination, he could never write this book. The last thing I'll refer to you, and because of the sake of time, I'm just gonna glance over it a little bit. Look at the prophecies of Jesus. There's over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ and his life. It predicted uh, from Daniel chapter nine, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Did you know that it actually gave us the timeline of when Jesus would be born, and he was? Why do you think people are looking for a star to follow? Because Daniel was in Babylon, and they had their historical records of what Daniel said would eventually lead to the coming of the Messiah, and lo and behold, here he comes. But it also predicted things like his virgin birth, being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, that that silver would be used to buy a potter's field, that he'd be crucified between thieves. Why is that a big deal? Other than the fact that it, just, that it actually happened. When it predicts that Israel's going to kill its Messiah, how should the Messiah have died? Stoning. His bones should have been broken, shouldn't they? Because that's how the Jews dispatched of their own. They would stone people to death, but they couldn't stone Jesus because the Bible prophesied that Jesus, his bones wouldn't be broken. So God has to do something to, to crucify this guy, but the Jews didn't crucify. In fact, most, no, nobody really did that, except for the Romans later on in, AD, er, in 60 BC when they took over Israel. Now the Messiah could be crucified. But you see, Isaiah talked about this 700 years earlier. I could talk more and more and more about this, but I'm gonna just pause there. Friends, look at this. The message of the Bible, it glorifies God. We look at the, uh, we look at the unity of the scriptures. It shows that only God could unify men like this. We look at the science of the scriptures, things that the Bible said that but long before man ever knew it. The prophecies of the Bible as God uh, reveals to man things that God could not possibly know. What is this all? We put this all together. What does it say? The book is not, the Bible is not such a book that man would write if he could. Man will not condemn himself. But it's also not a book that man could write even if he desired to. All that we have left now, friends, is to submit to the message, have confidence that what we have here is a God-preserved message to bow to God of the Bible, to submit to him, to believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've never done that today because maybe you've had doubts about whether or not this book is actually from God, friends, I hope that we have sufficiently 
put to death any of those ideas that somehow this is just a human document. Friends, listen to the message of God's word. If you've not received Jesus Christ, you don't know that he died in your place for the sins you and I committed. If you don't know that in that death, God allows you to come back to him, he will forgive your sins and grant unto you eternal life. Friends, I pray today, this will be the Sunday that you come to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. You've given us a Bible, but you did not just ask us to put blind faith in a document. Just because we're, like many scriptures, declared to have the, a word from God, a word from the beyond, a word of the divine. But you don't just ask for blind faith. God, you give us many infallible proofs. You give us a word of prophecy fully confirmed. And while we don't believe in Jesus simply because of a scientific argument or intellectual reasoning, the word that you have given to us uh, is a very reasonable book. It's a very reasonable faith. Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there's anybody here who has doubted the message of, of Scripture, God, that they would come to learn and to know about and to believe in the Jesus that that Bible proclaims. And that in so doing, God, they might receive eternal life become a disciple of yours, God, and so give you the glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, If you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.